Hi there, everyone. Welcome back to It's 21, where me, Rob, me, Andy, and me, Lizzie, all look back at every single UK number one of the 21st century from January 2000 right through to the present day. If you want to get in touch with us, find us over on Twitter. We are at Hits21UK. That is at Hits21UK. Or you can find us on emails. Uh, we are Hits21Podcast at gmail.com. Thank you ever so much for joining us again. We are currently looking back at the year 2007, our second episode of the year, and this week we'll be covering the period between the 18th of March and the 21st of April, so a slightly shorter time frame this week. Um, With regards to poll winners, between 2006 and 2007, we have changed the way that we record the podcast and we're still working out a few things. So if you have having a few teething problems uh, with those changes. So for now, the polls will carry on and you'll be able to see the results in public, but we won't be announcing them on the show just for the time being while we work uh, while we work some stuff out. Um, But with that being said, it is time to press on. And get ahead with this week's episode. And as always, it's time for some news headlines from around the time the songs we're covering in this episode were at number one in the UK. At the Olympic Stadium in Rome, dozens of people are injured when riot police become involved in clashes between supporters of Roma and Manchester United during a Champions League match. Uh, supporters threw missiles at one another while police set upon both sets of fans, primarily the United fans though, with batons and riot shields. Two British sailors are killed after an accident on the HMS Tireless submarine in the Arctic Ocean, before 15 Royal Navy personnel are captured at gunpoint by Iranian forces in the Persian Gulf. They were eventually released 13 days later. And in America, 32 people are killed and 17 people are injured in a mass shooting at Virginia Tech University. The shooting was perpetrated by Soon Kui Cho, a student of the university. At the time, it was the deadliest mass shooting in modern US history, and it is still the deadliest school shooting in US history. The films to hit the top of the UK box office during this period were as follows. 300 for one week, Mr. Bean's Holiday for two weeks, and Wild Hogs for two weeks. ITV announces that Dermot O'Leary will replace Kate Thornton as host of The X Factor. In later years, Kate revealed that she had initially been told by Simon Cowell that her contract would be renewed before finding out she was to be replaced. Ben Shepard also quits his role as host of The Extra Factor in protest for not being considered the next in line for the role. And the BBC broadcasts the final episode of Life on Mars... And Jackie Oatley makes history as the first woman to commentate on Match of the Day. Andy, the UK album charts, how are they? Well, after last week, as you may remember, we had a great towering classic from the noughties with Back to Black, the highest selling album of the noughties. And it's another absolute monolith of the era this week with Doing It My Way by Ray Quinn. Uh, which goes gold <laughs> and is number one for one week. <laughs> Doing It My Way is is an album of Rat Pack covers. Uh, it looks pretty unimaginative, to be honest. It's 34 minutes long. Uh, Ray Quinn is the only <laughs> credited musician on the album, apart from, bizarrely, Strictly's Dave Arch, who does all the um, orchestration. Uh, that, that goes oh. number one. I know, yeah. That goes number one for one week and only goes gold. Sorry, Ray. Uh, before that's toppled by Take That, who are returning to the top with their album Beautiful World. That goes back to the top for two weeks. And just to recap, that was a huge, huge hit. It went nine times platinum. And I've got one more album to talk to you about this week, which beats Take That. It's Because of the Times by Kings of Leon, which stayed at number one for two weeks and went triple platinum. It's not the one with uh, Kings of Leon, but it's the one before that one. Plenty more to discuss next year from them. But yeah, Kings of Leon are on the up at the moment. And that's all this week. So yeah, happy, uh, happy number one, Ray Quinn. I'm sure you'll have plenty more. Does Ray Quinn do My Way on that album? He does, but only <laughs> only at track three. So for the first right. two tracks of the album, he's kind of sort of falsely selling the album because for the first two tracks, he's not done My Way. So he isn't doing it My Way. <laughs> but yeah. yeah. How disappointing. Just looking again at that uh, Wikipedia page about this album. There is an unusual record with this album. It's the first album ever to reach UK number one without any singles released from it. 
Isn't that an interesting oh, fact? Oh, wow. Oh. That is... I wonder why he didn't release any singles. That's just really strange. Yeah, I but... wonder. Yeah. Uh, Lizzie, how are the states? Well, over in America, Fergie scored her second number one hit around this time with Glamorous, featuring Ludacris. It was the third single from her debut solo album, The Duchess, and it stayed at number one for two weeks. It was certified triple platinum in the US, and it peaked at number six in the UK around the same time. God damn it. After that, <laughs> Akon returned to number one with Don't Matter. It was the third single from his second studio album, Convicted, and it stayed at number one for two weeks. It was certified platinum in the US, and it peaked at number three in the UK in May of 2007. And finally for singles this week, Timberland scored his first number one hit as a lead artist with Give It To Me, featuring Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake. It was the lead single from his second studio album, Shock Value, and it stayed at number one for two weeks. It was eventually certified platinum in the US, and wouldn't you know it, it also washed up on our shores as well. More on that later. <laughs> so over to albums now, and I will run through these as quickly as I can. So we've got Greatest Hits by The Notorious B.I.G. One week at number one, got to number 57 in the UK. Love and Music by Music Soul Child, one week at number one, failed to chart in the UK. We Were Dead Before the Ship Even Sank by Modest Mouse. Really? Yeah. Wow, okay. <laughs> and that spent one week at number one and got to number 47 in the UK. Then we have Let It Go by Tim McGraw, one week at number one, failed to chart in the UK. And now that's what I call music 24. Two weeks at number one, wasn't released here for obvious reasons, but it did have some British representation on it in the form of Smile by Lily Allen, Put Your Records On by Corinne Bailey Ray, and Suddenly I See by Katie Tunstall. And My Way by Ray Quinn. Yes, of course. <laughs> <laughs> All right then, thank you both very much. And we are going to move swiftly on to the first song we're covering this week. And it is this. This is Walk This Way by Sugababes vs. Girls Aloud. Released as a standalone charity single for Comic Relief, Walk This Way is Sugababes' 17th single overall to be released in the UK and their fifth to reach number one. As for Girls Aloud, it's their 15th single overall to be released in the UK and their third to reach number one. It's not the last time we'll be coming to either of these groups on the podcast. The single is a cover of the song originally recorded by Aerosmith in 1975, which did not make the UK chart, but it's also a cover of the re-recording by Aerosmith and Run DMC, which reached number 8 on the UK chart in 1986. Walk This Way went straight in at number 1 as a brand new entry knocking Take That off the top of the charts, and it stayed at number 1 for one week. In its first and only week atop the charts, it sold 52,000 copies, beating competition from I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers, which got to number three, and Acceptable in the 80s by Calvin Harris, which climbed to number 10. Oh, wow. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Walk This Way dropped one place to number two. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for seven weeks? The song has Whoa. never received any official certification from the British phonographic industry. Seven weeks. Seven. Whoa. A joke. Lizzie, how are we feeling? This is a mess. It's, it's a this joke, is... isn't it? I just, I, it in, is. all, in every sense of the word. But sorry, carry on. I mean, I'll, I'll keep this brief because bloody hell. It's a team up between two groups I've 
really grown to love from doing this podcast especially. And it's produced by Dallas Austin, who also produced Push the Button and is the proud owner of the most American name in existence. But (laughs) this cover just doesn't work, unfortunately. In particular, I found that the vocals sound like they're from a completely different song and the backing track sounds cheap and muddy compared to both of the originals. I really tried to like this because of the people involved, but this is a complete swing and a miss from both of them, I'm afraid. Good thing we still have better songs to come from both groups, but this is a stain, isn't it? Like, there's a reason people don't remember this, and yeah, not good. Well, that was brutal, Lizzie. Um, I mean, I I completely agree, though. I do completely agree. Um, I think... You know what this makes me think of? Um, I, I, there is a meaning to this. I will get to it, don't worry. But um, do you remember that episode of The Simpsons called Homer Defined, where Homer keeps thinking about what he will come to represent in the dictionary, what he is an example of? And yeah. I, I was thinking about this, because this is the image I would put next to the phrase, less than the sum of its parts. This yeah. is like... <laughs> it, it is that phrase, in a nutshell. It's, it's that you've got the Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud. And, you know, I wasn't the hugest fan of the Sugar Babes at the time, but I liked them, and I bought into that sort of staged rivalry between them. And I thought, ooh, they're doing a single together. I remember hearing about it and thinking, oh, that's interesting. And when I found out it was Walk This Way, I was like, uh, you know, I've never been the hugest fan of that song. I think it's a little bit overrated, but it's, it's still a good song. And um, I thought with those two groups singing it together, that's going to be something. And then we get this, which is just—I mean, it's just nothing, really. It's—it's—it it is almost nothing at all because they do so very, very little with the song that they—they sort of have this weird approach to it, where with one hand they are so reverent to it that they won't touch it, but then with one hand, the—the the small amount of things that they do change are all bad things that they do to it. They add this "walk this way, you want to talk this way," which just—it's just so unnecessary. It just adds nothing to the song at all, and it's just really distracting. And um, I think just in the fundamentals, it doesn't work. I agree that it's just a bad choice of song for two artists who just aren't really engaging with it properly. just fundamentally doesn't work. But there's little things about it as well. Like, Cheryl Cole is quite prominent in this one. And in the chorus, you can hear her accent, which you can't normally. But you can hear her going, walk this way. Like, walk, pet. (laughs) Walk this way, pet. You know, (laughs) you can sort of hear the walk. And it, it really bothers me. It really put me off. Um, and she gets quite a lot to do in this song, and I, I kind of sort of laughed at it, because at the time, well, not at the time, because she hadn't done X Factor yet, but when she did do X Factor, there was this kind of running theme that she is absolutely <laughs> clueless about rock music. There was a famous incident where um, someone sang Crocodile Rock, and she called them out for doing such an obscure song, and even the other judges laughed at her for that. Um yeah, that was strange. And on one occasion, she demonstrated she didn't know what a chord was and what a riff was. She thought they were the same thing. So um, she is not up on this kind of music, and she does her best with it. But I just, I don't know, I couldn't get that out of the back of my head. But yes, um, I feel like if I didn't know this was Girls Aloud and Sugar Babes, it would have taken me an awfully long time to work that out. Because yeah, at, no at no point does it feel like you've got eight singers on this. That's just, it never feels like more than two, to be honest. Um, it's just very very slight and very very uh underwhelming for what it is i don't think it's absolute garbage i I think you know we've had plenty of worse stuff for comic relief and for children in need and whatever you know i don't i don't think it's that awful but you've got girls allowed and sugar babes who are willing to do a classic song and this is the result like i say less than the sum of its parts um it's just it's bland just really really bland um and that is the last thing that either Girls Aloud or Sugar Babes are. So that's the sort of biggest condemnation I can give to it, really. So it's okay for what it is, but what it is ain't much. Not at all. Yeah, my notes for this are mm, short. The only real conclusion that I took away from this is, oh, Mutty has left, su- left Sugar Babes. <laughs> <laughs> they have a Mel in now. Um, but yeah, well, I suppose... You know, they give the little ad-lib for Cheryl, that stupid like thing that you mentioned, the walk this way, you want to talk this way. And hey, what do you know? I'm out of notes. Like, <laughs> just cable, <laughs> trying to be 
nice or even remotely asked about this. You know, think you know the the, the girls and the babes. You know, they they do like a half decent job for charity, but like the whole thing is sort of bankrupt from the moment it starts. You know, you can tell it's been assembled in such a way that like you're not supposed to have a reaction to this other than hey. It's Sugar Babes and Girls Aloud doing Aerosmith and Run DMC. Because charity singles, as we'll find out, not just with this song, but with the next one, they're not really designed to do anything except to give a sense of familiarity combined with a degree of effort from contemporary faces. And that's exactly what this is. Like, I don't really want to give it any more of my words because that's just it. Like, that's the whole thing with charity singles, where it's like, it's that thing you know so buy it, but done by someone more current. So kids, you buy it, and that's it. And I always get feel I always feel iffy about charity singles because like it's like you can't criticize them because everybody goes, oh, they're doing it for charity, and it's like, well, are they doing it for charity though, or are they just doing it in association with the charity to make themselves <laughs> look good? Like, yeah, and yeah, I come down on the latter side with this one. Um, just you know, no, making no secrets about this. I'm slamming this straight into the pie hole. Before this week, I was like, oh, maybe it's not that bad, you know, because I kind of had it, you know, sort of, maybe I'll pie hole it, maybe. And then, yeah, the more I've listened to this, I'm just like, meh. The best thing about it is, I think, how much Nadine puts into this, how much more she puts into this compared to everybody else. <laughs> it's really funny as well in the video where, like, the other seven of them are sort of, like, looking around, like, well, you know, we're getting paid to do this, and gotta look nice on telly haven't we whereas nadine is just like hairs everywhere and she's making faces at the camera and she's scowling and doing like all the talk of this away you know like some really angry <laughs> italian and yeah i just yeah not no no not keen on this fair play to nadine for giving it a go fair play to like cheryl for the ad lib i suppose <laughs> Because it's something new. <laughs> but, yeah, like you, Andy, I'm not, like, that into the Run DMC Aerosmith version. It's fine. It's, you know, mm. I, I think it's... I, I appreciate its significance rather than the thing that it is. If oh, you know yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if I was going to recommend anything about this song to anybody, it's to watch one of the first episodes of Hip Hop Evolution, which is a Netflix hip-hop documentary. And watch the episode where Run DMC get told by uh, Russell Simmons that, um, so we've had an idea for your next single, fellas. It's going to be this, and you're going to rap the verses and the look that they give each other and then the looks that they have while they're in the studio. Because, like, obviously on the track, they sound like they're really giving it, and then there's, like, early takes of them singing the song, and they're like, what? What are you making us do? This is going to kill us. This is going to kill our career. This is going to end us. It's going to ruin our credibility with our fans and the people who, like Aerosmith, won't take to us. What are you doing? And then it ends up being one of the biggest selling songs of all time. <laughs> but that's the only yeah. thing I would recommend. Thank you, Rob, for the um, guest appearance of the person who defends charity singles. I just adored that voice completely. Though. Oh, but it's the charity! <laughs> Can we have more appearances from that person, please? <laughs> yeah. Um, but also, I just wanted to make a point about um, this. Th the whole point you made there, Rob, about how, well, it's the thing that you recognise, done by people you recognise, so there you go, just go buy it. And I completely, like, agree that it's totally cynical and, like, lazy. But it does work. Like, it got number yeah. one. So I think I think with any... I'm always having to remind myself at this when we're talking about crap songs on the show that anything that we cover got number one. So in some ways, they're onto something just inherently. But the thing is, though, with it being a charity single is that you think you want to raise as much money as possible, don't you? And seven... The yeah. thing I keep thinking about is those seven weeks in the top 100. Yeah. That, you know, they didn't raise nearly as much money as they could have if they'd come up with something good. Like, Band-Aid was a charity single, and my word, the money that must have raised over the years and continues to raise mm. through streaming and stuff like that... You know, I get that it's a charity single. Last Christmas was a charity single that was year. it really? Well, Beside there we go. everything she yeah. wants. Yeah. So I mean, if 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 getting to number one is your goal and that means you've made money for the charity, then fair enough. But your goal could be so much bigger. We're not angry. We're just disappointed. <laughs> yes, that is exactly it. Hello. You will notice that I sound slightly different. This is the first time I've ever, I think, recorded something for a Hits Twenty One episode 
way after we finished recording, and I'm actually just editing the episode right now. Um, as I was listening again to Walk This Way, as I prepared the clip for the episode, I realised that I'd neglected to mention something in our initial analysis, which is that the the lyrics of the uh, of the original are obviously gender-swapped for the Sugar Babes Girls Aloud version, because, oh, we can't have the public thinking that any of the members of Sugar Babes or Girls Aloud are uh, gay or bisexual. We can't, we can't have that, not on a comic relief charity single. But the bit that they've not gender-swapped from the original is the creepy 1970s lyric about the sassy schoolgirl with the skirt climbing way up her knee. Um, yeah, that was a revelation. So, yeah, back to the episode. Uh, okay, so we're going to move on to the second single that we're going to be covering this week, which is this. When I wake up, when I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. Yeah, no. When I go out, when I go out, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who goes along with you. When I get drunk, when I get drunk, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who gets drunk next to you. Yes! Yeah. And when I hear the, well, well, I know I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be the man who's hearing to you. Now, and I would roll five hundred miles, and I would roll five hundred miles, just to be the man who rolls a thousand miles to fall down at your door. When I'm working, Okay, this is I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers featuring Brian Potter and Andy Pipkin. Released as a standalone charity single for Comic Relief, I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles is The Proclaimers' 10th single overall to be released in the UK and their first to reach number one. However, as of 2024, it is their last number one. This is also the only song in UK chart history that's credited to Brian Potter and Andy Pipkin. The single is a re-recording of the Proclaimers song which originally reached number 11 in 1988. I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles first entered the UK chart at number 3, reaching number 1 during its second week on the chart, knocking Sugar Babes vs Girls Aloud off the top. And it stayed at number 1 for 3 weeks! In its first week at number one, it sold 126,000 copies, beating competition from Girlfriend by Avril Lavigne, which climbed to number three, and Destination Calabria by Alex Gaudino, which climbed to number five. In week two, it sold 56,000 copies, beating competition from Glamorous by Fergie, which climbed oh. to number five. And in week three, it sold 48,000 copies, beating competition from Stop Me by Mark Ronson and Daniel Merriweather, which got to number six. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles fell three places to number four. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 13 weeks. The song is currently officially certified silver in the UK. As of 2024, uh, Andy, your namesake is technically credited on the song, so you can begin. <laughs> Should just clarify, my surname's not Pipkin. No. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, this is a funny one, isn't it? I'm disappointed that it's the only song credited to the two of them. Would have quite liked a whole album called Doing It Their Way, where they just absolutely butcher a bunch of classics. Would have loved that. Um... <laughs> Yes, this is a difficult one, because what are we analysing here? Are we analysing 500 Miles by The Proclaimers, or are we getting into whether we find Peter Kay and Matt Lucas funny? Are we getting into do we find them funny as these characters? And also, it's a charity single, so there's that, once again. So there is a lot to kind of work around here, and I don't really know what angle to come at this from, except for it's supposed to be funny. And it's not funny. Like, it's just not funny at all. Um, 
until the proclaimers come in, this is like actual garbage. Like just actual shit. This until until the proclaimers come in. Like I would never ever have chosen to listen to this again. I still won't, to be honest. But I like the original by the proclaimers. Um, my mum and dad are huge fans of the proclaimers. They've seen them like over twenty times. And in 2007, actually, um, I went to a gig with them where me and Dad got to meet them afterwards, which was lovely. Um, they were very nice people. We did that because people used to say me and my dad looked like the Proclaimers, uh, which we did a bit because we were ginger <laughs> with glasses. But I digress. Um, I really like the original. It's not one of the very greatest, I think, but like it's a very, very solid song. I can see why it was such a huge hit. And once again, the problem we've got here is nothing is being added to the song. And instead, what we do get is actively detracting from the song. Um, Because I think the whole shtick here of Peter Kay and Matt Lucas is just not funny. I don't really really get it, to be honest. It's just kind of heavily accented singing of the lyrics with the occasional catchphrase thrown in, with the occasional... Yarn all or Shaka Khan thrown in, and it's just, it's the laziest, most lowest common denominator form of humor ever. And I've got to say, I, this is partially sort of in the shadow of the fact that that's how I feel about Little Britain in general, and I never liked Little Britain. I was never into it, which is, um, I, you know, back in the early, no- well, early mid noughties, that was actually like the hottest of hot takes. I, I genuinely didn't like it, and I felt like the only person in the world that didn't. Um, I don't really know why, to be honest, because there was other sketch comedy like Mitchell and Weblock and Catherine Tate show, which I really loved, but I was never into Little Britain at all. Um, and particularly not this, I want that one, yeah, I know, just, oh, just absolutely mind-numbing, because you'd hear it in the playground all the time. And this is 2007, not 2005. Like it's, I know that there's only a small difference there, but that's an age for a child, and the joke was so dead by 2007. So, so dead. Um, and, yeah, so I, I, it didn't raise a smile at all. Um, but, yeah, as a song, it's fine, but I just don't really know why this exists, to be honest, except as another kind of mildly indulgent exercise for Peter Kay. I'm not really sure where this came from as an idea because you would think Peter Kay because he's done Amarillo, but then can't be a coincidence that I know that Matt Lucas is a huge, huge fan of the Proclaimers. Some mm. of my mum and dad's albums of the Proclaimers that they've got by them have got forwards from Matt Lucas. He's like he knows the band, he loves them. So it was probably Matt Lucas's idea to some extent, um, but the whole thing is, like I say, it's just a bit of an exercise in indulgence. We've got the video once again, which is crammed full of celebrities. This time we've got David Tennant hanging out with Rod Jane and Freddie, which is strange enough. Um, it's it's just kind of Amarillo done again, but much much less eye catching, and even less funny. Uh, yeah. Like I say, nothing against the original. Love the Proclaimers. Well, not love the Proclaimers, but I like the Proclaimers. Like the original, but this is thumbs down. Don't like this at all. No. Yeah, yeah you know about like five, ten minutes ago when I said that charity singles aren't really designed to do anything except give a <coughs> sense of familiarity combined with a degree of effort from contemporary faces. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Th- this was funny at the time. At the time. You know, because, well, because I was 12 and an idiot, you know, so like, well, but okay. like, it kind of works as a comic relief sketch where you get a load of faces in to have a laugh as part of some large comedy bit and everybody goes home happy having seen people on the telly that they've not seen in about 15, 20 years. You know, it's a lot like Amarillo in execution, though it kind of takes on a life of its own afterwards in the same way that Amarillo did. But it means that we're left with it in audio form 17 years later. Because Amarillo's just the song replayed. There's no new bits added to it. It's technically just a re-release with Peter Kay's name on it. But with this version, obviously that's not the case. Um, I like the original. It's not Sunshine on Leaf, but it's lovely. The Proclaimers are occasionally, I think, very great. And thank God that they turn up here to remind us why we all like the song in the first place. Because, oh, yeah, the joke gets old <laughs> pretty fast. And even, like, the vocals aren't even mixed very well. They're just loud. 
They were very, very loud. It felt like... Because the, the video version is slightly different. The, the There are ad-libs and there are certain things um, changed and taken out of the live... Uh, sort of like the, the TV version. The, 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 they're different compared to the uh, the single version. Um, and the single version, the vocals are mixed horribly. Far too close to the... Far too close, far too loud. They drown the track out, which is... It means that the joke becomes hard to laugh at because it's just not a nice experience. <coughs> if they were mixed a bit further back, all the deliberately shit singing wouldn't be too bad. But it's just because, you know, you listen to it after 17 years and it's like, oh, I don't remember it being this close to my head. Um, but then the proclaimers turn up and it's like, oh yeah, lovely. And then it makes me think that maybe the whole thing should have been more of a collaborative effort because the last minute of this isn't too bad. You know, Matt Lucas and Peter Kay come back in, but because the proclaimers are there and because Matt Lucas and Peter Kay are a bit further in the distance, it's like, yeah, okay, it gets a, a communal feel to this and you are reminded of the the video with all the people in it singing the da 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 you know, all the famous faces, and you get the sense of camaraderie and nostalgia and all of this. Um, I will say as well, I do sort of love the moment where Matt Lucas does the um, working hard for you, because it's like, oh, you can sing. Why aren't you just doing this for the rest of the song? <laughs> Why aren't you singing this nicely, even in character? Why are you not doing it? But um, I do think that moment and the proclaimers coming back into it, they're the things that save it from the pie hole uh, for me. But when the proclaimers do come in, it's like they've suddenly changed the CD and decided to play the original. It's quite a bizarre effect. Um, I'd be kind of curious, though, to play this for a kid who wasn't born in 2007. You know, some 13, 14, 15-year-old, and ask them if they find it a, funny, or B, if they even have any idea of who Brian Potter and Andy Pipkin are. <laughs> Just to see their look on their faces when they get told that they're wrong, that they're not real people, <laughs> that, that, they're these, <laughs> that they're these two characters from, from TV shows of the day. Um, because with Amarillo, it's like you could play it and everyone, you, you know, it sounds like the era that it was recorded. Whereas with this, obviously with all of the added vocals on, it just feels like this thing that is suspended between two time periods. And I feel like if you played it to somebody now, it's even though it was number one for three weeks and sold a lot, I just feel like it's not something that you can really hand down the generations <laughs> or even begin to understand if you're not part of the generation that experienced it. Um, which, okay, fine. You just It's only supposed to be there to make money for charity and whatever, but meh. I definitely get it how, like, oh, it's for charity and it's just, a, you know, a silly kind of shameless cash-in thing for that. But it's weird that they didn't need to do that. They weren't those type of flash-in-the-pan comedians that needed to do that because I get the point about Kids Today, but Kids Today probably would know who Matt Lucas and Peter Kay are. Like, they're still working. They're, they've, they've actually... Both of them have gone the distance. Like, Matt Lucas is mm. doing Bake Off, Peter Kay is still really popular. Mm. Like, they didn't need to do this silly little let's create a pop career just to keep ourselves in the limelight for five more minutes. They didn't need to do it. I, I could totally understand if this was like... Oh, I don't know. I'm trying to think of some different flash in the pan. Say if this was like Robbie Williams' friend Jonathan Wilkes doing a duet with Armstrong and Miller. You know, I could sort of get that. But, you know, they, these are two genuinely big names who, who did go the distance. And looking back, you're like, why did you bother with this? You didn't need to do this. Strange, isn't it? When I was looking at the, uh, the, sort of like the information for this, I was a little bit... I, I had forgotten whether it had been credited to Peter Kay and Matt Lucas or whether it had been credited to Brian Potter and Andy Pipkin. And... I feel like it would have been a bit wordy to have the Proclaimers featuring Peter Kay as Brian Potter and Matt Lucas as Andy Pipkin. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I just wonder if it would have, just for cataloging and crediting purposes, just have it be Peter Kay and Matt Lucas so that 17 years down the line it can be like, oh, it's Peter Kay and Matt Lucas. They're the guys off the telly. They're the guy that my... He's, he's the guy that my mum's going to see in 2025 and she bought tickets in 2022. <laughs> you know, like that, you know, like that sort of thing you can maybe relate it to but mm. with the charity single though you're trying to raise money at the time you're not trying to raise money 12 years in the future 
But do you not think that Peter K and Matt Lucas would have shifted that number of copies as well? You mean if it's just their names? Yeah. Mm, I don't know, actually. I think Peter K probably might, but I don't know about Matt Lucas as just a name. I think everybody who bought this knows that they're Peter K and Matt Lucas. So I, I think it's it could only have been more rather than less if they, if they just used their real names. But mm. I don't know. Lizzie, how, how do we feel about the song? Well, I mean, I chose to focus on Lucas and Williams in my notes because um, we'll cover Peter K again, spoiler alert. And sadly, thank you, Baked Potato did not get to number one. It got to number 34 in the height of the first COVID <laughs> lockdown. So this is my only chance to actually talk about them at any length. And I don't think we have done a post-mortem on Little Britain that perhaps we should... Um, mm. They are a frustrating double act, Lucas and Williams. You watch their early work like Mash and Peas and Rock Profile and you get shows full of imaginative parodies of pop culture figures, many of which are quite venomous towards established names like Michael Barrymore, Victoria Wood, Gary Barlow, Elton John. Like, sadly, there is some blackface here too, like their otherwise very funny take on Prince as a Glaswegian busker. Uh, it's just an unwelcome <laughs> reminder of what their comedy eventually became and where we find them in 2007. So by this point, Little Britain had moved from BBC Three to BBC One, and the first episode of Series Three the year prior pulled in 10 million viewers for the first episode on a random wow. November evening, if I recall. Series One of Little Britain showed glimpses of the old Lucas and Williams, but by Series Three, that was long gone. All that was really left were the catchphrases, the gross-out humour, and of course, the punching down. Lou and Andy, I think, are a prime example of that decline. For most of series one, the joke was that Andy was quite insightful off-screen, in contrast to his lack of speech on-screen, and he'd intentionally use Lou's agreeableness against him in order to wind him up. An early example was Andy asking Lou for some dark chocolate from the shop, to which Lou reminds him that he once said that, quote, dark chocolate has a bitter edge to it and lacks the oral ecstasy of its milkier cousin. <laughs> That's funny. That is, a, that is a joke. That's really funny. But it's only in the final episode of series one that you get Andy getting out of his wheelchair behind Lou's back. But that unfortunately becomes the running gag going forward. There were a couple of problems with the portrayal of Andy in the first place, but this running gag in particular, I think, caused a lot of the harm to disabled people in Britain at the time, especially at the time when there was a strong media narrative around, you know, benefit cheats and scroungers. And the worst people you know saw this sort of thing as confirmation of their biases against disabled people in general. In terms of Peter Kay as well, he did have an odd tendency towards characters and wheelchairs. Not just Brian Potter in Phoenix Nights, but also Two Up, Two Down in Britain's Got the Pop Factor the year after this. Hmm. However, I never got any sense of nastiness about Brian Potter. It's mostly just an extension of Peter Kay who just happens to be in a wheelchair. Much like Little Britain, Series 2 of Phoenix Nights did tend a little bit too much towards the reactionary, especially, you know, the illegal immigrant storyline, but it's not remembered with the same kind of ick that Little Britain is, which I think is telling. And what's also frustrating with Lucas and Williams is how they can't seem to make their minds up about the legacy of Little Britain. So one moment you'll have Matt Lucas saying that he regrets the jokes about transvestites and the racial stereotypes. And then a couple of years later, they'll show up on the big night in during the pandemic, playing the Emily Howard character again and doing a Lou and Andy routine about eating bats. Like, there's been rumours very recently about them reviving the show, which I really hope doesn't happen. Yeah, I, don't, I think Matt Lucas has been no. quite quick to say that's not happening. Uh, which Thank is a bit God, of a relief. But yeah. having seen Come Fly With Me, it's easy to see how they could go down a very similar path. And, I don't know, Matt Lucas especially does seem to be serious about making up for the mistakes made in the past, but 
I don't see how that can be done if those same mistakes keep getting dredged up for a quick cash in every now and again. Just, I don't know, just let it lie or own your legacy, not both. I don't know. Um, I realised I've not actually talked about the song, so I'll do that very quickly. Um, I agree with you, the Potter and Pipkin bits are painfully unfunny, but the proclaimers singing their own bit about halfway through the song is a blessed relief, and it's enough to remind me of why I like the song in the first place. So, as much as I don't like this particular version overall, I'm still very glad the Proclaimers have a UK number one under their belt, as I think it's one of the loveliest pop songs to ever come out of Scotland, and it would be Mm. a damn shame if they didn't have a number one, I think. So yeah, sorry about that, but thought I'd get that off my chest. Yeah, well, not to skip right ahead to what you said at the end there, but I also thought that before when I was like, these guys did Letter from America, Sunshine on Leith, I'm on my way... Or, and like none of them were number one so at least they get something at least exactly. they get a little moment in the sun again at the very least um yeah with little britain i haven't watched it for a long time i think i might go back through it just to see how it i re-watched changes. it this week it's it's bad yeah it's really is bad. the first season even like okay or is it just never any good i just the, the first season is okay it has its moments there are still a lot of the same problems but overall i found it like night and day compared to series two and especially series three that fucking stinks Mm. but yeah um not it's not so good that i'd recommend it to people but i would say in the context of little britain it is the better series so one last thought on 500 miles um when we talked about amarillo we discussed it in relation to how pop culture was on the edge of a radical shift where the noughties still had a connection to the 80s. And like, you know, we talked about how the noughties still had a stronger connection to the 80s and about how Amarillo was, you know, one of the last examples of the 80s pop culture still surviving as mainstream culture in the 2000s. But surely this, with 500 Miles, with all those faces in the video just looking at them and i honestly think there are more people in it who are dead than still famous Oof. now and so and so surely surely is this is this the last vestige of that whole thing where like maybe you could have jasper carrot wee jimmy cranky the i forget what the dustbin thing is called is it dusty bin yeah dusty bin uh, yeah like all of them in the same place and have everybody watching go oh i remember all of those people like is this is this is this the last time surely this is the last example we get is there anything more that comes after this where i'm miss i'm forgetting is there something from like 2011 that i've forgotten about <laughs> but surely this is it there's um there was some adverts for i think a norwegian channel that um, had a load of TV faces lip-syncing to the Ferry Aid version of Let It Be. Have you seen this? No. I've heard the song, but not the, um, I think, anyway. Oh, I'll have to send you this, because it's one of yeah. those, it's like, it's him. Oh, my God, it's him. <laughs> this similar kind of thing. Mm. But I think that may have even been before this. Mm. Um, in terms of having them all in the same room, I, th- I think this is it. Like, you occasionally get yeah. them on, like... You know, like This Morning, that sort of show where it's like, and he's got a new album out and about three people yeah. buy it. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, in terms of all having them all in one place and, you know, your family being able to pick out most of them. Yeah, I can't think. I've been thinking now. I can't think of anything else. There's the uh, cartoon characters one, but that doesn't count, obviously. That's, that's all I can think of. Yeah. Mm. Okay, then we are going to move on to our third and final song this week, which is... This. Is it going? Is it going? Is it going? Is it going? I don't know what you're looking for. I'm 
This is Give It To Me by Timberland, featuring Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake. Released as the lead single from his second studio album titled Shock Value, Give It To Me is Timberland's eighth single overall to be released in the UK and his first to reach number one. But it's not the last time we'll be coming to Timberland on this podcast. This is the second and last number one to date for Nelly Furtado, but it's not the last time we'll be coming to Justin Timberlake. Give It To Me first entered the UK chart at number 99, reaching number one during its third week on the chart, knocking the Proclaimers and them other two off the top. <laughs> it stayed at number one for one week. In its first and only week at number one, it sold 30,000 copies, beating competition from Beautiful Liar by Beyonce and Shakira, which climbed to number five. When it was knocked off the top of the charts, Give It To Me fell two places to number three. By the time it was done on the charts, it had been inside the top 100 for 36 weeks. The song is currently officially certified platinum in the UK as of 2024. So, Andy, um, Timberland featuring Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake. Have at it. Yeah. Um, weird this, that although it is... For me, the best song of the week. It's uh, the only one of the week that I didn't know. Never heard this in my life until I started listening to this for uh, for the show. Um, and I suspect, in general, that I'm far less clued up about Timberland than either of you two are, to be honest. And I think, at the time, he just completely passed me by. Um, largely because this type of stuff is not really my bag. In recent years, I've become more appreciative of it. Um, but once again, I do have to come back to this theme of less than the sum of its parts. Because Timberland, Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake, you've got three very big talents there. And this is just fine. It's fine. Um, like I say, I hadn't heard it before and it, it didn't really grab me, to be honest. I, I, I think all of them give quite good vocal performances. I like the production on it, which is not something I can say about a lot of R&B music of this era. Um, but I just I just kind of wish I had a little bit more of a lift to it, to be honest. And despite the fact it is the best song of this week, I think it's a bit of a low bar. It's not been a great week. Um, and I find myself having surprisingly very little to say about it. Um, yeah. Like I say, I, I think that all three of them do very well on it. And it made me reflect on the fact that it's a shame that both Nelly Furtado and Justin Timberlake don't get better number ones than the ones they've had because they keep on sort of having okay ones hit number one and then not have their very best hit the top, which is a little bit frustrating. But no, I did like this, um, but I, I'm a little bit mystified about how it took off and other than the star power behind it, which I guess is probably the main thing, I'm a little bit kind of in the dark about this one, to be honest. So I'm not going to take up too much time talking about it because I'm sure you two will have far more to say than I but yes this is good but uh, I have so little to say about it for me this is like the definition of bang average so prove me wrong if you like yeah <laughs> Lizzie uh, what about Timberland and them other two <laughs> the other other two <laughs> well yeah I think it's quite good until you look deeper into the lyrics like, yeah. To start with the positives, I'm a big fan of that hypnotic Timberland production, and I think Nelly Fasado in particular really suits this kind of beat, much like on mm. Say It Right, that we've praised a few times on this podcast. I also find Timberland's voice quite striking. You don't often hear singing voices that full and resonant in pop music, and it provides a nice contrast to... Nelly Furtado's more sort of nasally, airy singing style. It's very catchy and enticing in terms of its sound, and it's not usually the sort of track that would encourage you to scrutinise the lyrics. However, I think Justin Timberlake's verse on this is embarrassing, to say the least. Like, for some reason, he decides to take a pot shot at Prince, of all people, 
merely because Prince <laughs> made some comment at an award show party about how, quote, sexy never left. Not even a particular insult to Timberlake or what have you, just a reminder of how Prince injected sex into mainstream pop, where it remains pretty firmly to this day. Timberlake decides to take this personally, like he's Michael Jordan in a big armchair, and he starts taking aim at Prince for not having chart hits anymore, and the year after this he's doing like hype jokes about him. As if anybody gives a fuck, especially not Prince. Like, I don't get it, I don't see what part of that comment Timberlake thought He's taking aim at me personally rather than, oh my god, Prince is acknowledging me. That's amazing. That is a dream come true. I dare say it, like, if not for Prince, I don't think Tim Blake would exist. Or at least, I don't think he'd be able to break out of a boy band the way he did and sort of reinvent himself in, dare I say it, a very Prince-like mould. Uh, you also get Tim Bland taking shots at Scott Storch, who was kind of done at this point anyway, after squandering a lot of his fortune on coke and what have you. Talk <laughs> about kicking a man while he's down. Like, In addition to that, Nelly Furtado has expressed some regret in recent years for her involvement on this track, and I'm honestly not surprised, because on the surface, it's another solid Tim Bland pop hit, but underneath that is a thick layer of pettiness that makes it very hard to love and once you know the details very hard to ignore i think it's a real shame because i went in really liking this and then the more you read into it the more it sort of reveals itself as something quite rotten <sighs> what a shame i don't feel too dissimilar actually um i will say andy though first answer your question about like how this got to number one i think this is the start well it's it's the earliest it's an early prominent example of something that we're going to get a lot of over the next kind of 15 years on the show yes which is less and less in terms of groups and more and more in terms of collaborations where Mm, it's just solo artists not bothering to go into groups anymore because groups are a thing of the 90s and the noughties we're going to be you know we're heading towards the 2010s and we want solo artists who are cool and trendy working with each other because then justin timberlake nelly Vitado, and timberlands fans can all go oh this is interesting and it becomes like a huge deal for artists to like work together and obviously because of things like uh the internet it becomes a lot easier. You know, Justin Timberlake doesn't even have to be in the same country as Timberland and Nelly Furtado for this to work now. You know, like, ever since, like, the early 2000s, I think, like, you know, being able to have, like, international global studios and mobile studios and home studios and all that, it makes all of it so much easier to accomplish. You know, with um, by this stage, I imagine Justin, Nelly, and Timberland can email things back and forth where even as only as recently as 2003, you had um, the Postal Service, uh, Ben Gibbard and DNTel, the electronic producer, having to use the thing that gave the group the name just to send CDs back and forth, like to you know create this album entirely separate from each other, and we've come such a fa- such a long way in five years, and the rest of pop sounds like this, where it's like. Producer guy with a singer and another singer. I'm thinking of literally everything DJ Khaled does that we have to cover on this show. Oh, where yeah. it's just guy with money, guy with desk, singer, other singer, maybe a rapper. You know, like, and yeah, that's the, this, Ugh, this is the future of pop. Yeah. Yeah. Um, your Guettas and your Harrises and your. that lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you bet. Yeah. With this, um, back in the day, I was absolutely obsessed with um shock value and in many ways it started me down a road to where i am today as a music listener and a songwriter and as a person actually you know a few windy indirect roads but it leads me to the place where i am now in, in quite a big way we will come back to this story in 2013 so we'll park that for a second because me and a friend at school, we were really obsessed with this. And we I think I've mentioned before, we started following what Timberland was doing. Like, this is how um, 
I got into things like Nelly Furtado's Loose at the time, you know, we were following the acts that he was producing for and kind of looking back at the things he had produced for other people, you know, like Missy Elliott and whatnot. Um, I listened to this back to front quite a lot, Shock Value. All the big singles were a big part of my iTunes library uh, in 2007. I think it was after this came out, actually, that we thought, oh, okay, what's, you know, what's Shock Value? What's this thing? You know, let, let's go and listen. Um, all the big singles were quite regular, you know, the regular rotation on my iPod in like late to mid to late 2007. Some of the first songs I ever had, tr- had transferred over to me on MSN were um, <laughs> Shock Value songs, which means it's a little bit of a shame to come back to this after all this time and have it be less than the sum of its parts. I agree with you, Andy. I think what still stands up is the beat. Timberland's productions are almost always going to sound great around this yeah. era. This is no exception. I love the menacing, shimmering instrumental lead on this. I'm a fan of the way that everybody's vocals are mixed. And I think Timberland's done a great job of putting three distinctly different vocalists together on the same track and still pulling them into an environment that sounds cohesive. You wouldn't know that they hadn't been in the same studio, just you know, on the off chance that they haven't been. Because now we have that capability, but you wouldn't know unless you were told. Um, I'm even a fan of Timberland trying to do his best Nate Dogg impression on this and actually kind of pulling it off. But like you, Lizzie, it's just a shame that everything they have to say just it just isn't even that interesting. Even as a even as a boast, you know, braggadocious track, like love my ass and abs in the video for promiscuous. My style is ridiculous. Yeah, oh, come on! Is that the best you can do? <laughs> this is what I mean about it being less than the sum of its parts. It's three of the biggest names and the best minds in pop at the moment, and we get this, which is fine. I feel a similar way about a Timberland Timberlake female vocalist thing that we get next year as well, where I remember the hype for that particular track, four minutes, really distinctly, and then I remember when it dropped, and I remember everybody going, "Oh, is that it?" You know, I mean, yeah. it still got to number one, but like it was like, whoa, this is going to change the world. And maybe that's our fault. But instead, you know, we get told there's four minutes to save the world. And we're like, ah, it didn't change the world or save the world, really, did it? It just kind of breathed in and just sort of like went, huh. And then it went away again. Um, <laughs> um, lyrically, this is very flat. It's a very boring diss track with wrong targets. Yeah. You know, uh, and yeah, I'm even less sure about the, the Nelly Furtado's lyrics. I'm even less sure about Justin Timberlake's whole verse. I'm not even sure if it's worth it. I just think they were trying so hard here to be like provocative and controversial, and it isn't convincing. None of the content really lands, and I think it's no. a waste of a great instrumental and the waste of a pretty good chorus, mm. I think. And the chorus is endured, actually. It's still a a thing on TikTok, isn't it? Like, where you get it, I mean, obviously, because everything's sped up on there, but, like, you still hear, you know, you'll be seeing us in the club, you'll be acting real now, and you do have it on videos played every now and again. And I think that's a sign of its longevity, but, like, everything else around it, thankfully, seems to have been erased from history. Uh, just a little bit. Okay, so, before we um, finish the show and check about pie holes and vaults and whatnot. We're going to do the second edition of Did Rob Buy It? Uh, so, on the 18th of March 2007, I made five purchases in the iTunes store, billed to a total of £5.05. £5. So, I've bought another video, and it's I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles by The Proclaimers. Oh, damn. <laughs> and, uh, Shame yeah, on you. Yeah, my fault. Um, I have also bought the radio edit of The Creeps by Camille Jones and Fede Legrand. I'm really, uh, really wanting Fede Legrand. Like, I'm a bit of a stan of him, apparently, when I'm 12. Um, the radio edit of Destination Calabria featuring Crystal Waters by Alex Gaudino. So that's just the song. Um, oh, dear. I bought Walk This Way by Sugar oh, no. and oh. uh, At least I'm back in the winning horse, but I regret it so much. Um, and also The Sweet Escape by Gwen Stefani. Ah, nice. Right. And so, and the day after uh, this period ends, uh, the, on the episode that we're covering, 
so I bought Acceptable in the 80s by Calvin Harris. That's there. Okay. Um, Our Velocity by Maximo Park. Uh, New <laughs> Shoes by Paolo Nutini. Candyman by Christina oh. Aguilera. Love Today by Mika. Um, I also bought Give It To Me, Timberlake, Timberland, Nelly Furtado. Um, also the Mark Ronson, Daniel Merriweather one. Um, Away From Here by The Enemy. Um and I also then bought the song I'm Gonna Be 500 Miles from. Apparently, Jesus. I bought the version that was on Now 66. <laughs> um, and Brainstorm by Arctic Monkeys. So, yeah. I've become a bit more discerning in future episodes, I think. Um, so, before we go, we're just gonna check. Andy, walk this way, 500 miles, give it to me. Uh, pie hole, vault, nowhere, what's happening? Walk this way isn't walking anywhere. Um, 500 miles is going 500 miles into the pie hole uh, <laughs> it's actually not that bad but it is going into the pie hole yeah um, and give it to me um, I'm not giving anything to it no it's not going anywhere okay then uh, Lizzie Sugar Babes Proclaimers Timberland pie hole non non cool then <laughs> um, I am pie holing not pie holing and not pie holing either um, so that is it for this week's episode thank you very much for listening when we come back we'll be continuing our journey through 2007 so take care everyone and thanks for listening bye bye now see ya bye bye speaking words of wisdom let it be 